0: If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not reap or sow or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about your clothes? See how the flowers of the fields grow. They do not labour or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendour was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink? Wise words indeed. This is the the word of the Lord. Thank you, Michael. You should
1: just stay up here and preach. (laughs) Good morning. Good evening, even. Um, I'm Mark. I'm on the team here, as Stephen said, uh, overseeing discipleship and uh, looking forward to getting to know those of you who are new to St. Aldate's. Now, Martin Luther once said of the Christian life that there are three conversions necessary the conversion of the mind, the heart, and the purse. And the topic of money forms the single most important moral teaching for Jesus. He actually talks and teaches about money more than he talks and teaches about love. In almost a third of his parables, in every seventh verse in Luke's Gospel, he's talking about money. He sees it as fundamental to our discipleship and our Apple Wallet, and our eBay searches and our Amazon baskets are all Jesus's concern. For Jesus, how we relate to money and then how we deploy it is a litmus test of our spiritual maturity. And Billy Graham adds this, if a person gets his attitude towards money straight, it will help straighten out almost every other area in his life. So that's amazing good news tonight. If you've got a relationship if, issue, if you've got a family issue, if there's a problem at work, there's a suggestion here that actually our attitude to money may be a key because money is all about what we hold on to in our heart and what we are prepared to release. And yet it's strange, isn't it? We often keep our mouths shut about money but Jesus opens his mouth very wide, leading one to ask, if we trust Jesus for our salvation, then why wouldn't we trust him for what he says about money? Why wouldn't we treasure his words, come from heaven, about money, as perfect and peerless wisdom for our welfare and our benefit? And the key question Jesus asks each one of us in this passage is, who are you serving? Bob Dylan sings this, you might like to eat caviar, you might like to eat bread, you may be sleeping on the floor, sleeping in a king-sized bed, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil, or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. You can serve the moment, you can serve yourself, you can serve the world, you can serve the devil, you can serve God. So often people serve the wrong master. For many years before I came to faith, I was self-serving. And the story of my money was essentially me, myself and mine. Jesus asks us, Who are you serving with your gifts, your talents, and your treasure? And our treasure is what we most deeply value in our life, here in our heart. This passage comes from the Sermon on the Mount. And interestingly, Jesus is speaking to a crowd of very mixed financial background. But he says to each of them, you have treasure For Jesus, we all have treasure, prince or pauper, you have it. You have gifts, you have talents, you have resources, you have what he calls treasure. And in this passage, he increasingly applies that word treasure, in fact, to our finances. Be they modest or be they fulsome. The widow has got her two mites in Luke's Gospel. You'll remember, Jesus loves her. I've got some friends who've got a bit more than that and whenever they buy something like a a flat screen TV or they take out a new subscription, they've put a luxury tax upon themselves and they give double to church or to charity. Jesus loves them too. Jesus is less interested in how much we have to give than in the heart behind our giving. And then Jesus asks us in this passage, are you investing your treasure in heaven or are you investing it here on earth? He pleads with us from his heart. He says, do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. And it seems so harmless, doesn't it, to seek our happiness in the world. But if that's where Jesus saw it, why didn't he preach it? Yes, he wants us to be prudent. He wants us to save. But he wants our hearts to be in heaven. And why? Because he's won us a heavenly calling. He's won us an inheritance that can never perish or spoil or fade. Our culture has uh, this phrase, time is money. But we're not just made for this time. We're made for eternity And you'll remember the writer of Ecclesiastes says, God has set eternity in the hearts of men. We are the eternity people, and that perspective is to frame our thinking about money. Because when we lay up our treasures in heaven, what happens is that it draws our hearts heavenward. Our affections settle there instead of being tied to the things of this earth. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And if our affections are in heaven, that's surely good news because that place is just filled with joy. But heavenly treasures are better than that because they can also have kingdom impact here on earth. As Stephen said, this is such a time of opportunity here for our church to see people in Oxford won for Jesus, to see the last, the least, and the lost helped, to see people built up and strengthened in their discipleship. And our generous giving is probably one of the most concrete ways that we can make a difference in the world for Jesus. The fact is that most of the time, God works less through the supernatural but more through the super generous. There's one Harvard theologian who says this, God tends not to work by violently ripping into the fabric of history or arbitrarily upsetting the momentum of its powers, but rather within and through the closely textured and natural historical processes of our modern experience. Which is a bit of a mouthful, but what it basically means is that in this age, it's perhaps a little less about miracles And it's more about the ordinary miracles of our generous giving. Last Monday night, I was um, outside the church centre over there and I bumped into one of the members of our church. He's, um, He's a member of ACT and he was showing people from the streets, who live on the streets, down into the basement for our Monday night ACT supper. He is one of the most joyful people I know. And he comes from one of the most challenged backgrounds. So I thought it would be interesting just to ask him, what did he think about giving? And this is what he said. He said, I wake up every morning in an act house that's provided for me, and I bless it. I only have it because of giving. He said, I went to the summer conference Focus with St. Aldate's, and I enjoyed intimacy with God and got to know more people, great people in this church, because I was on a bursary made possible by giving. He said, I'm standing here, helping folk down from the streets to worship and Bible and supper, and there's gonna be food on the table there, food made possible by giving. And then he ended with this, because he's a bit of a preacher and a bit of a poet. He just came out with this, God has an inexhaustible supply of provision in his kingdom, but God loves it when we join in and partner with him. God loves it when we join in and partner with him. Kingdom living begins with our giving. And when we lift our gifts to heaven, they're literally gaining eternal weight and consequence. A.W. Tozer says, whatever is given to Christ is immediately touched with immortality. I remember I'd just given my life to Jesus as an adult and um, I heard the first, for the first time these kinds of teachings of Jesus about money. And I remember being as- astonished and also astonished that the church I was in in London uh, wasn't underwritten in some way in terms of its kind of everyday bills by the Church of England or some kind of timeless endowment but it was made possible only through the generosity of its members. And I remember I was staggered by that, slightly appalled, and also very excited because the invitation to join in with Heaven's plans was enticing, it was compelling. And yet, at the same time, my wallet remained tightly shut. And uh, I was dating my future wife, Jen, at the time and uh, she'd come to faith in the Philippines and the pastor who'd brought her to faith there had said some words to her which kind of just resonated for me at that time. He'd said, Jesus is knocking at the door of your heart and you can open the door of your heart and let him in and he will come in and eat with you and you with him. But he wants all of you. But he wants all of you. I'd nailed various habits pre-Christian, my habits of lying, my habits of swearing, my habits of gossiping. I'd nailed those to the cross, but I knew that I hadn't yet surrendered my wallet. And there was only one thing to be done. And so this is effectively what I did. I just... nailed it to the cross. And... uh, It took a few blows, and it hurt a little. It stung a little. But after every crucifixion, there's a rising. And I've never regretted that. I've never regretted entering the adventure of Christian giving, because it blesses others, because it lifts your heart to heaven, because it draws you closer to Jesus. He wants all of us, and where our treasure is, there our heart is also. And then second, Jesus asks us, who are you putting on the throne of your life? God or mammon? Who is the Christian God? He's a riotously generous God. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. He's the Lord of the universe. He's the one who brings creation into being. He's the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and he shares it with us. He's given us his very son. Now who is mammon? Because in Matthew's Gospel, the Aramaic word is actually mammon, not money. Well, mammon is a dark spiritual force in the world. He's the spirit of worldliness and greed. You can check out, if you like, online an 1885 painting by a painter called George Watts. And it's a painting of Mammon. And Mammon basically looks like a combination of Joseph Stalin and Marlon Brando in Apocalypse Now. He's not pleasant looking. But actually, I think it's wrong. Because Mammon, the spirit agreed, he's a much more plausible figure than that. He's a figure who comes along and speaks into any place of lack within us, any hole within us. The actor Brian Cox, who plays Logan Roy in the TV series Succession, had his dad die on him in childhood in Dundee. And Cox tells about how his mum went to the bank at the time and found only 10 pounds in his father's saving account. And Cox calls money my own personal demon. We all have our money stories, we all have our money histories, our money biographies, and it may be that there's some stuff there that actually would be helpfully brought to prayer ministry later. The film actor Charlie Sheen says, money is energy, man. Money is neutral, but you can touch it with the spirit of God or mammon, and then it will pulse with energy, either light or dark. And the answer to mammon is to know our value in Jesus Christ. Because when we know that, mammon can't take a grip of our heart in the same way. He can't stifle our generosity without our even knowing it. Jesus says in this passage, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will full of light will be full of darkness, which is a a kind of really cryptic series of verses until we discover that in the Greek, a healthy eye is a generous eye, and an unhealthy eye is a stingy one. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that our attitudes to God and to money affect our very perception, affect the way we are relating to and seeing the world. It also affects how much light, Jesus says, we let in to ourselves. It determines the state of our inner being. When our eye is faulty, we see darkly. When our eye is faulty, we self-justify around our spending. We think we have money, but actually money has us. We get tied to the desires of this world Our horizon, our heavenly horizon, narrows. Our bandwidth for joy just shrinks. The spirit of mammon, when it gets hold of me, it binds me and it blinds me. It tells me that money will buy my freedom. But by contrast, the Book of Common Prayer praises God whose service is perfect freedom. When I make my Father in heaven my master, what I find is that everything inside me falls into place. But I need to surrender my finances to God. I need to let him guide my steps. Jesus says, give up your faith in money and be wholehearted in your devotion to God. There simply isn't an either or for Jesus. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. And in my former life as a theatre director, I I once directed an old Italian comedy called Just This, The Servant of Two Masters. And it was about this this crafty guy, this greedy guy, who decides that he's going to get on best in life if he serves two masters, without them knowing about it. And he runs between the two of them. And they're very, very different masters with very, very different values. Some of us may be living a bit of a split life, like him. And the fact is, I used to go into the dressing room of the actor who played that role every night after the show, and he was virtually about to have a heart attack. I mean, he had physically exhausted himself running around the stage and in the same way we can spiritually exhaust ourselves serving two masters because you'll live with a divided heart. You'll be possessed by your possessions. Jesus says you can't be best friends with God and with the world. You'll have too much faith in your heart to be happy around worldliness and you'll have too much worldliness in your heart to be happy in your faith. We can only serve one master, and when we do, it brings joy, it brings purpose. But Jesus doesn't just seek spiritually to draw us to heaven through imparting heavenly perspective in this passage. He also wants to inform our money lives in very, very practical ways. He says, first of all, he says, make money your servant. Because the fact is, money is actually a fabulous and creative servant when it's directed to kingdom good. But you do, he says, have to hate or despise mammon or greed. And interesting that he uses such strong language. Jesus really doesn't mince his words here. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a a German Christian who came from a very wealthy family, um, he was a man who was constantly worried about the, the grip that wealth might have upon him. And uh, he was discipling some young men in one season of his life and paying for all their train journeys. And one of the young men turned around one day and says, Dietrich, could I pay you back? You've been so generous. And Bonhoeffer said this, money is dirt. Money is dirt. Now that might strike us as extreme. But actually he just knew he wanted to protect and guard his soul. Secondly, Jesus says, store up treasures in heaven. Jesus is suggesting there's some kind of merit in steady storing, in regular giving. In the Old Testament, tithing to the temple, tithing of 10% of one's income was entirely normal. In the New Testament, we're not under the law, but the early church was known for its extravagant generosity. And one helpful line of thinking, in my view, is to give 10% to the church, and then give one-off gifts to charities and missions and the poor. For students or those on very low income, 10% might take you into debt, and it might be much better to think about matching what you spend on your weekly coffees. For the wealthy or the faith-fueled, 10% might just not seem very much. But the point is we give God our first fruits. We get in early. We don't give out of what is left after we've paid all our other bills. I went to a generous friend that I know this week and I asked her about her attitude to giving. She said, I view it as a discipline, a choice, a game, sometimes a percentage, sometimes all, to find out whether I'm grateful or a grumbler." And I'm always reminded it's all a gift to me in the first place. And I remember the first time I entered this game by taking out a standing order to church. And I could just sense the way in which heaven and earth were coming together through this simple action. Because we must never create a false dichotomy between the material and the spiritual. Jesus' ministry cost money, and he was enabled in it by women like Joanna, Susanna, and Mary. He didn't just accept the worship and prayers of his followers, he accepted their financial gifts too. Thirdly, Jesus says, be generous, or here, be generous-eyed. I've been thinking this week about Dickens' characters. The generous characters are always described as having twinkling eyes. St. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, be a cheerful giver. And the Greek adjective is actually hilaron, from which we get our word hilarious, be hilariously generous. We give away in faith and we give away more than we feel we can spare. There's meant to be some sacrifice. There's meant to be a little bit of sting because this is the faith move that honours God and also trusts for his provision. David says, I will not sacrifice to the Lord sacrifices that cost me nothing. I've been really... uh, impacted by seeing this again in my life. Recently, um, I'm on a WhatsApp chat with a group of guys from London. We came to faith together. And um, frankly, uh, the WhatsApp chat tends to be pretty monosyllabic, kind of short, blokey, you know, not a lot of um, uh, words being expended. Anyway, a few weeks ago, one of our number, um, I'll call him Doug, he asked for prayer. And he said he was going into hospital because he was going to donate one of his kidneys, which would mean that further down the line, a friend of his would receive a kidney. Very lovely thing to do. And this friend isn't a Christian, and Doug just loves him and feels that giving, uh, making this donation um, is a way of witnessing to God's love. And uh, he said, could you just pray for me while I go into hospital? And um, and then I'm coming out. I'm not going on summer holiday this year abroad with my family. I'm just going to have to be in bed for a couple of weeks. He said, it's a relatively low investment with a high return. And I've never quite seen anything like it. This WhatsApp chat, I mean, it was just filled with poetry. These blokes were gushing. I mean, you understand why the early church in its generosity had such impact on the people around it. And then fourthly in this passage, behold Jesus. Because beholding Jesus, we see the one who gave up everything who gave up his very life at great cost, and for what? For us, his treasure. At the cross, Jesus rescues us, and the cross is how he stores up his treasures in heaven. It's how he stores up us, our destinies in eternity, the fact that we will be with him forever, and he with us. And when we soak in this truth, we're like the man in Matthew 13, who you'll remember finds the kingdom hidden like a treasure in a field. You'll remember he joyfully sells everything, everything he has, and he buys that field. And he gives up everything because Jesus is his treasure. When you know your treasure is the kingdom, you want to give sacrificially to the king. You realise that life is about his eternal kingdom, not your very earthly one. So Jesus calls us to a decision in this passage. Not to live divided. Not to be a servant of two masters. He wants us to be able to say, along with Paul in Philippians, one thing I do. One thing I do. Decision is the gateway to fulfilment in the Christian life. When we make our decision for God, Jesus says in this passage, our body is flooded with light. Money doesn't become the basis of our worth, he does. And when we get this, the power of money over us and over our heart is broken. That's amazing good news. In Ephesians 3, Paul talks of the boundless riches of Christ. Riches that are worth so much more than any earthly inheritance we might receive. So invest in Jesus and consider what you get. Unending return in eternity and a life of dignity and purpose in the here and now. You value your treasure for its investment potential for the kingdom. You value other people as treasure because you begin to see them through the eyes of Jesus. And you value the church, God's chosen instrument, to save, to heal, to restore. The fact is, for 1,000 years, God has been doing something very special through this place in Oxford, through many trials, but essentially through the unending generosity of the people who've worshipped here. And God has brought us together in this season by His Spirit imagine what might happen if we all lent in with our talents, our resources, our treasures to the glory of God and the advance of his kingdom. God has prepared a part for each one of us to play and he invites us to partner in his plan for salvation and for the renewal of all things in Oxford and elsewhere. So don't be a spectator, be a kingdom investor. Seek first the kingdom, store up your treasure in heaven, have a generous heart, and serve your God. In Jesus' name, Amen. We're going to come to communion now.